Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Thanks for being here for another episode of Body Justice. If you're not familiar with me already, my name is Allison Ford. I'm a licensed therapist in San Diego, California. I work with clients virtually on eating disorders, anxiety, trauma, and relational issues. Um, My focus area, though, is definitely eating disorders, and I just love doing this work. I'm super excited for our guest for today's episode because her name is Dr. Parissa Neely. She's a licensed psychologist um, in Calabasas, California, LA area. She also works with um, eating disorders, anxiety, body image. Uh, She works at the University of Southern California Counseling Program for Eating Disorders, um, as well as her own private practice. So she's got tons of knowledge to drop on us today and just tools to share with, you know, with you and I about how she works with her clients with eating disorders. We have pretty similar theoretical orientations and approaches, so I think you'll really enjoy her. I definitely enjoyed talking to her. Um, And before we get started, just a couple quick announcements. So if you're following me on Instagram at Body Justice Therapist, um, you probably already know, but I have recently released um, a online self-paced course for eating disorder recovery. This course is meant for people in recovery that kind of want to just fast track your journey. It's not meant to be a substitute for therapy, neither is this podcast. This is just for educational purposes only. Um, However, the course is designed to give you tons of tools to help you on your recovery journey. It's also good for loved ones of people in recovery wanting to know more about like things they can do to support their loved one and just the different challenges their loved one is facing in recovery. It's also great for professionals who want to learn more about treating people with eating disorders. So other um, therapists out there that maybe this isn't your niche area, but you just want to learn more, or maybe you want this to be your niche area and you want to know how do I treat um, people in eating disorder recovery. So go to my Instagram, check out um, in my highlights, you'll see the link to my courses. You can also go in the link in my bio and you can get access to the course. And as always, DM me if you need a discount code. I want this course to be a social justice mission, meaning I want it to be accessible to everyone. So if you need a discount, if finances are a barrier, go ahead and shoot me a DM. I'm happy to give you a discount. And without further ado, let's get started. Dr. Parissa Neely, here she is. I'm Parissa Neely. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist based in Los Angeles, and I kind of have two jobs. So my first job is uh, that I'm an assistant clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry at University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine, where I primarily treat students with anxiety and body image concerns, including eating disorders. 
And I also have a private practice in Los Angeles that's all telehealth right now, um, where I also mostly have clients who are female identified and wanting to work on anxiety and eating and body image concerns and work-life balance. Um, so when it comes to my identity, I identify as a cisgender female. I'm a millennial. I feel like that's important to say. Yes, <laughs> it is. <laughs> like which, which generation you're a part of, especially like on social media. Mm -hmm. um, so I was born and raised in Los Angeles, but my parents immigrated to the US from Iran. Um, so my nationality is Iranian American and I speak Farsi or Persian. Um, and with that, I think it's important to mention that I do have white privilege and I want to take responsibility for presenting as phenotypically white and, you know, not everyone in my family presents as white. Um, so similar to many, intersectionality is just really important um, to recognize. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, I love doing yoga. I do a lot of yoga and um, I mean, I want to recognize the yoga that we, that a lot of us do is kind of just mindful movement and incorporating just like aerobics, but I love doing it. And um, I even did like yoga teacher training a couple of years ago. So that's been just like a really big part of my own mental health that I'm sure we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. um, and other than that, I have two family dogs that I love more than anything. So <laughs> that's me. <laughs> Awesome. Sounds like you are a very busy woman and just have a lot of awesome things going on. Yeah. And thanks for sharing about your ethnic background. It's, um, you know, I can relate to that. Like I, I'm mixed race, so I'm Dutch, Indonesian, Mexican, American. And so, yeah, different members of my family don't present as white, you know, and in certain contexts, people perceive me as white and sometimes I don't. Um, and so it's a hard duality to hold, right? Like I have this ethnic background and I also have this privilege of like presenting white. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that you mentioned like in different contexts, we mm -hmm. can be perceived differently. Um, but yeah, so I mean, the intersectionality and understanding like our identities and how we relate to others and how we relate to the world is just so important to recognize. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It informs so much. Um, yeah. Can you tell us how you ended up working with eating disorders, body image, and anxiety? Yeah. So um, in my doctorate program, I became really interested in cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. And then I also got really into acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. So I started going to a bunch of trainings and those two theoretical orientations lend themselves really well to be a part of an evidence-based practice for a lot of different concerns that people experience um, and a lot of different diagnoses. But really what I fell in love with is just working with anxiety and OCD. Um, mm -hmm. That was definitely my jam. I loved doing like, um, like fear exposures with mm -hmm. people. And it was just so rewarding to, um, to see people like overcome their fears. And and I know that you also share similar interests and similar theoretical orientations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. It's really fun to watch people do exposure work, um, not in like a sadistic way, because obviously yeah. it's super hard for the client, <laughs> right? But yes, you're right. Yeah. Like it's it, you get to see the rewards pretty quickly, and it is like it's just so awesome to see people gain back that power in their life. It's so awesome to be a part of that process. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so in a lot of, so a lot of my trainings were at university counseling centers and it just happened to be that a lot of my supervisors, their area of expertise included eating disorders and just working with people struggling with, um, with food and, and body image. And so inevitably just working at college counseling centers, I was going to, um, you know, eventually have a student who was struggling with similar things. So um, when it first came up for me, I kind of talked to my supervisor about it. Like, I don't know if I'm the best person because I feel like I'm in a lot better place with my own body image in relationship to food now. But, um, you know, I kind of like, I'm kind of feeling this like imposter syndrome about it. And she told me like, well, do you think you could use your experiences to like connect with clients? And I was like, oh, like, that's a great idea. Yeah, let's try that. Um, and it's just something that felt really natural for me to do. And, um, and it just like the incorporating social justice into it, especially, I mean, for the large majority of shared identity that I would see as women. So just really like trying to help advocate and educate like how how we got here um, in regard to like their relationship with food and body image. So it's now just been something that I've been really primarily doing and, and it's really rewarding. Yeah, that's wonderful. So you also have some personal experience, it sounds like that has fueled your passion for this work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you, you know, reflecting back on your personal experience, um, do you feel like your ethnic background um, has shaped, you know, your relationship to food or your body over the years? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we talk about like the intersecting um, identities and I think a large part of it, I mean, there, I think there's like a few different aspects that ended up influencing um, my relationship to food and my body. And I think, um, you know, the first one just being the first child in my extended mm -hmm. family to be born and raised in the US. Right. I put a lot of pressure on myself to succeed academically and you know, just kind of like the American dream. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that just led to a lot of perfectionistic traits. And I really internalized like how my achievements defined me as a person. Um, and then, you know, actually, the more I talk to other people from different cultural backgrounds, the more um, it seems like it's really common to also share this like cultural norm of commenting on like weight loss and weight mm -hmm. gain about each other, like just publicly, like people who haven't seen each other for like a long time, they'll just like, that's the first thing they comment when they see someone right. and, but especially for women. So there's a strong emphasis in like how your body, um, is related to like your social value kind mm -hmm. of, um, and then I grew up in a mostly upper white socioeconomic neighborhood. And even though I have white privilege in certain contexts, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, my neighborhood was pretty like homogenous. And I would say just like, you know, Euro-American type of ethnicities. Um, so it was like, on one hand, I felt like I could sometimes fit in and other times I couldn't. And then also like growing up in the era of 9-11 and with mm -hmm. a lot of Islamophobia and um, discrimination against folks from Middle Eastern backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, I think just growing up like really as like a vulnerable child to all of that, there is a lot of internalized 
dislike for my cultural background. And so I wanted to like fit in and I didn't want to be different. So I think that in combination with like a lot of intergenerational trauma um, historically in my family and a lot of internalized sexism that there's just like so much emphasis on um, your like having a certain look would make you successful or attractive. And I think all of this just set up the foundation for me and um, to like start to develop like um, a hyper focus on my body and worthiness in general and like how different successes defined my, my worth whether it's success with like maintaining a certain body or grad school and things like that. So therapy in, in grad school really helped me just unpack so much of this. And I was able to start working toward like living a life in accordance to my values. And that personal growth is something that I continue to work on every day. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That is, it's, it is so complex, right? Like all of our intersecting identities influence you know, our mental health in general, but for those of us mm -hmm. who have struggled with disordered eating or body image issues, it's so intertwined and it's so left out of like traditional treatment. Um, it's, and it sounds like for you, this was like a big part of it. Like um, being, you were like the first born in the US, that is really hard. Like, <laughs> and I can't imagine the pressure you had and like, you know, feeling like wanting to fit into your peers, but then things are different at home and then add on to that the Islamophobia, like, yeah, that must've been super hard and isolating. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was really hard. And, and, but luckily like, you know, growing up in LA, it is a pretty diverse mm -hmm. city. Um, so I think like I was able to find support within, with certain friends who maybe shared similar identities, but I think it's just so important, like, you know, what I've been harping on is to take into, cons into consideration people's backgrounds. And then also what we are dealing with, like sociopolitically and with diet culture and things mm -hmm. like that. So, yes. yeah. Yeah. And that brings us to our, our next question, which, you know, <laughs> we were just talking about how um, for both of us, eating disorders are a social justice mission. Um, can you tell listeners a little bit about how eating disorder and body image work is related to social justice? Yeah, absolutely. This is like so important for me. And I think what um, really like helped me feel so passionate about doing this work. So I think so much of eating disorders is about worthiness and so many feelings of unworthiness are rooted in oppression of certain identities. Um, and we know that oppression in regard to body image can be highly related to like white supremacy and for some colonization and patriarchy and misogyny. And, you know, like when we talk about diet culture and beauty standards. So like when we um, recognize like how certain bodies are idealized in our culture and there's this like myth that if you achieve this body, then so many things will be better in your life. You'll be deserving of things that make you happy, including like success and relationships. And um, oftentimes when I ask folks, like what is really the driving factor of like wanting to pursue a smaller body? And they talk about like that, it would just make their life easier. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I think that's something that we have to, acknowledge like the fat phobia and weight stigma in our culture. Um, 
but you know, when we talk about like how this oppression plays out, I think women in general, we know women are disproportionately targeted by um, factors such as like diet culture and more broadly politics in general. Like mm -hmm. we're seeing that every day. Um, but specifically, I want to, you know, there are, and then there are other like groups that have been oppressed that are disproportionately targeted by um, this like idealized body. And I mean, specifically, we can talk about how like black women and like trans folks. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it really helped me um, in, in my past therapy of just how exploring like how my intersectionality has influenced my body image, my relationship to exercise, my eating habits, my romantic relationships, my friendships. And I think just building that insight and awareness became so validating. Mm -hmm. And so like, this is the science that we know and the evidence that we know about like how oppression can be related to body image and eating disorders. So there are specific things that I make sure to do in my practice um, to make sure that I am practicing through a social justice lens. And so one of those things is being a haze aligned provider. So a health at every size approach and acknowledging that there is just like natural body diversity and mm -hmm. we can challenge those like scientific and cultural assumptions together and focus on more intuitive eating and exercising and, or body movement if that's accessible to folks. And um, with that, I think just being an ally and really doing the work myself and knowing, like recognizing that I do have biases and, you know, something that maybe we would refer to like implicit biases. Mm -hmm. So I know that I need to challenge them every day and just approaching it with humility. And I'm not perfect when it comes to um, multicultural humility or um, I guess what we used to refer to as like multicultural competency. And mm -hmm. I still have so much to learn. It's like one of those things where like the more you learn, the more you realize like you don't yes. know very much. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like whether it's about yourself or the assumptions that you have about other people or other identities. Um, yeah, and so working at a university counseling center is really great for me because um, even though we can talk about how it's, it is privileged to um, have access to higher education, I think there are a lot of barriers that people face in receiving treatment for concerns with eating and body image, um, even in university. So a lot of students feel really uncomfortable talking about it. There's a lot of stigma. Um, I think there's a huge like lack of awareness because I think having an eating disorder is so normalized in our mm -hmm. culture. Like being on a diet is like normalized. Right. Um, you know, and like having, um, um, yeah, trying different diets or health foods and all of that is so normalized. So I think a lot of people come in and they say, you know, I don't think I have an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And we, I mean, we can also talk about like diagnostic problems with um, like the DSM. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, that's like a whole different episode. Yeah. Talk about. <laughs> um, but when I do provide them with education, I'm like, well, it sounds like your relationship to food and body is something that's really stressful for you and taking up a lot of your mental energy and a lot of mental space. So this is something that you can work on whether or not it fits the criteria of a diagnosis or not. So there's just like a lot of lack of education of like that fine line, actually, no, I take that back between like thinking you're reaching towards health because of like diet culture, like trying diet culture things and like having an unhealthy relationship with food and body. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I think just like, you know, when students come in, I'm typically the first person they've ever told that mm-hmm. they're having issues with body image and food. And it's really rewarding, but it's a lot of responsibility. And I want to make sure that we set a really good foundation and framework for what treatment can look like and how to get them in a place where they are living their life in accordance to their values and how we can make their life fulfilling. Um, and yeah, and the, and the other thing I do, and I know that you're so great at it, um, but advocating on Instagram and Mm -hmm. on social media, um, and just trying to spread awareness and education to folks. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. And I'm so happy that there is someone like you at this counseling center, because I, I feel like, you know, I've had clients that go to counseling centers and there's not anyone trained in eating disorders often. Yeah. And that's just not okay because, you know, as we know, the demographic for eating disorders oftentimes happens, starts in um, college. So it's just baffles me that a lot of counseling centers and, you know, of course there's systemic issues in that, but um, I'm so glad you're there because if you are the first person that some of these people have told, you know, then it, it sounds like it's, you've made a very safe space for, you know, a diverse array of clients, which is so important. Oh yeah. Thank you for saying that. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of my experience in counseling centers, there is a lot of stigma, um, with certain like, um, presenting concerns that people bring, um, that like there's certain things that folks want to work on. And I think eating disorders is one of them. I think there's a huge lack of understanding in our field about how it works. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there's a lot of counseling centers that will just immediately try to refer you off campus for treatment. Um, because there's this like, um, misunderstanding that it would take like a really long time to -hmm. work on it. And I think that there are ways, like most college counseling centers provide only brief therapy, Mm -hmm. but I think in brief therapy, there's like huge movements that you can make. Um, so yeah, so it is really nice working with college students. Absolutely. And, and people come in on all ends of the continuum, right? Like so many clients come to me, maybe they don't have a full-blown eating disorder, but they certainly have disordered eating and there's certainly a lot to unpack there. And, you know, that's a risk factor for developing a full-blown eating disorder. So I guess like for anyone listening, that's questioning, am I sick enough? Like, don't wait till it gets worse because it is a risk factor and you can, you know, get intervention now that can potentially like save your life and definitely save a lot of mental energy. Absolutely. I agree. And I think that's, you know, one of the things when you look up the DSM, the diagnostic and statistical manual of, um, I think, is it mental illness? (laughs) I've like, I've like, we always call it the DSM. I'm like, what does it actually stand for? Um, but when we, cause I think a lot of students will try or a lot of people will try to like look up eating disorder diagnoses and feel like they don't fit any of them. Mm-hmm. But that's oftentimes the case in which we end up, um, you know, if we have to use a diagnosis, it's normally like an other specified eating disorder mm-hmm. or an unspecified eating disorder, because those are more of, um, you know, so they can be like less severe, but it, it, but it doesn't, um, I don't want to minimize like the impact that it has on someone, but I agree with what you're saying. Like you don't have to wait for things Mm -hmm. to get really bad and that anyone, everyone is deserving of treatment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because most of the time they will get really bad without that intervention, you know, it just spirals. It's one of those things that often doesn't just like go away. Um, yeah, absolutely. 
And I love what you were saying, you know, when we were talking about how eating disorders are a social justice mis mission and looking at um, all the systems of oppression that influence people to feel unworthy. Um, that just rang so true in my mind when you were talking about that and also made me think like for many folks in marginalized bodies, it's not even safe to be in this world, you know, whether that's yeah. physically, right, or um, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it is. But if you don't feel safe in your body, like it's a natural response to want to disconnect from it. Um, yeah. And, you know, we can numb out from our body in various ways or dissociate it. And, and then it's, if you're disconnected from your body, like with anything that you're disconnected from, you're probably not going to treat it very kindly. Um, and it just gets yeah. to be this like easy target to take out our, you know, pain coming from these systems of oppression onto our bodies. Absolutely. So like, you know, we talk about like, internalizing a lot of like sociopolitics um, and a lot of oppression. Um, but I think it's just so important to like bring awareness into that um, mm -hmm. and how to be an ally to ourselves moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So important. Being an ally to ourselves. Wow. I love that. Yeah. Cause we always <laughs> think about like being an ally to others, but we have to be an ally to ourselves first, you know, to be able to really embrace and celebrate others' uniqueness. Yeah, absolutely. It's just so important. And, and you know, acknowledging that it's just been a really tough year, um, just in general. Um, but I think for social justice and racial justice, it's been a really hard year. And, um, you know, with COVID and, um, and how that's affected body image. So, um, it's just been a really heavy year. Yeah, it definitely has. And, you know, working in the college setting, what are some of the biggest things right now influencing eating disorders and anxiety? Yeah, I would say just going off of what I was saying, like COVID has been mm -hmm. huge because, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's pretty normal and pretty common to have gained weight in the past year because we've just experienced like such significant changes. Mm -hmm. um, most people's lives were affected in some way. Um, so I think just like the, the weight gain and, you know, we talk about like, this is your body surviving a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, and so yeah, like gaining weight might be distressing. Um, but we're also just trying to survive a pandemic. And I don't know, sometimes I think back and I'm like, well, you know, like the last pandemic, you know, Spanish flu, like a hundred years ago, I don't think we would like judge anyone for like gaining weight during that mm -hmm. time. So um, it feels like, yeah, like this is like an, a common thing that would happen. Mm -hmm. So I think COVID has been really tough. And um, I think folks have just been really isolated. Um, but then on the flip side of that, like social media, it continues to be something that can be very unhealthy. And so a lot of the folks that I work with will say like, you know, I'm just deleting my social media for this month because mm -hmm. it's just been too much. And for different reasons, one is like, you know, when we started out in COVID, everyone was talking about the quarantine 15. And mm -hmm. I'm like, are you kidding? Like we're like literally 7 billion people are just trying <laughs> to survive. You're and like, this is what, <laughs> yeah. And like, this is what people want to focus on. Like, why don't we talk about like mental health and like the isolation and how to cope with all of that. So social media is something often like, like people really feel good about like taking a break from. 
And then I think with COVID, you know, there's a lot of people who want to follow like the recommendations and guidance, guidances of staying home and, um, you know, isolating and trying to be really responsible, but it's also hard to go on social media and then see like friends that maybe aren't practicing the same Mm -hmm. kind of, um, recommendations and who are hanging out and who are traveling. And so I think it's just, it's fair to feel, um, some type of way about that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think just like social media with COVID, um, it's just been really hard. And I think they're just like social media is a huge way that folks can compare themselves to each other. Um, but in general, I think in college, there's a lot of like perfectionism that comes up for folks, a lot of comparison and a lot of competitiveness and the competitiveness is by design, right? Mm -hmm. So we like take SATs and the Mm -hmm. ACT, um, you know, and there's only a certain amount of admissions into college. So like that competitiveness is just deeply rooted into the culture. Um, And then there's competition for internships and for jobs afterwards or grad school afterwards. And um, it's just like, it can be a really stressful environment. So I think sometimes people put pressure on themselves of like wanting college to be this like perfect time in their lives, but it's a lot of pressure. And then like developmentally, mm-hmm. like, you know, for a lot of people, um, maybe moving out of their parents' home, living on their own, living with roommates for the first time, it's just a lot of change to handle. It really is. And it's like something, you know, now having been out of that, right. Like we can reflect on and be like, wow, that is a really hard transition time in people's lives but I don't know about you but when I was going through that kind of transition I didn't really think twice about it it was just like this is what's expected this is (laughs) normal right but yeah yeah it's a lot um yeah and it makes with this year right like students haven't had the normal college experience and I I work with a lot of college um, students too and it just seems like everyone is so isolated and anxious and depressed and um, things are obviously getting better now, but yeah, it seems like it's been a really hard year for the college student community. Yeah, it really has. It's such a difference. Um, and I think there's a lot of grief that goes with COVID as well. Like, you know, grieving like their first year at college or their mm-hmm. senior year at college, um, or like kind of looking forward to the social experiences that they would have had or the networking experiences that they would have had. So there's a lot of grief that we're all experiencing and all at different levels. And, you know, there also is like the grief of actually losing people um, during Mm -hmm. this pandemic, whether it's due to COVID or not, it's just, you know, like funerals are not the same, Um, traveling to, to go and visit family. So it's, or friends. And so it's been a lot of grief. Absolutely. And um, do you see that students are able to like acknowledge their grief and work through it? Or is there kind of like this cultural avoidance, would you say? Yeah, I would say there's like definitely huge cultural avoidance about it. Cause I think there's so much pressure to maintain a Mm -hmm. really active social life. And I think that's also influenced by social media. Mm -hmm. So it is really hard. Like we, when we talk about just kind of like, um, acceptance and like how we can take care of ourselves, like given the limitations that we have, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard for folks. Yeah, definitely. What are, you know, some of the top recovery skills that you teach your clients in practice? Yeah. So I would love to talk about, um, 
an acceptance and commitment therapy intervention that Mm -hmm. I really like. So um, thought diffusion is one of um, one of the main components of ACT. And what it means is that, well, I always explain to folks is that um, this means that the negative thoughts that you've had about your body and food are intrusive. So meaning that these are thoughts that cause a lot of distress for you. They're thoughts that are not in line with your values. Um, so if you have a lot of thoughts about like wanting to lose weight or not feeling um, uh, good in your body um, and things like that, it's just like, it causes us a lot of stress. So I always say that these thoughts are not a part of you because they're not in line with your values. And mm-hmm. so typically people say that they want to be able to eat freely without feeling super anxious, or they want to stop comparing their body to someone else. So one of my favorite interventions is kind of like externalizing this negative voice Mm -hmm. um, and uh, giving it like a character or like a shape or something like that. And the first thing that always comes to mind is like in old school cartoons where people had like a devil and an angel on their shoulders. (laughs) And so I always imagine this negative voice as kind of like that mini, mini devil kind of thing, like on your shoulder and, you know, whispering these like really negative thoughts into your ear all day and, and how exhausting that is, um, to just have that going on and how much mental space that takes up. Mm. But, um, when we externalize the voice, um, then we can try to, um, manage it better. So we may not be able to like get rid of this voice completely because we know when we try to get rid of something, we just end up thinking about Mm -hmm. it more. And instead it's kind of like, well, how can this like little cartoon character or whatever, just kind of like say these negative things to us all day, but how can we work to not let it affect us so much and not let it affect our mood so much? How can we turn down the volume of like these thoughts rather than working on completely um, getting rid of it? So some, I'll have folks like um, create like a character for it. And one of the funniest things was, um, someone picked like a real live politician. Um, <laughs> I've <laughs> totally done that too. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. So imagining this like politician being the one saying these like negative voices. So, um, and you know, you can even talk to it and just kind of like acknowledge like, okay, like I recognize that you're being really loud right now. Um, but you know, I'm going to continue to like try to focus on the work that I need to do because that's what's important to me or um, you're, I recognize that you're telling me that I'm not going to eat um, before going out with my friends even though I'm hungry but I'm not going to listen to you I'm going to eat and I'm still going to go out with my friends and so kind of like talking back to it mm-hmm. um, I think that's one of my favorite interventions. Yeah, I would have to agree with you and shout out to anyone listening that is struggling with, you know, the devil and the angel eating disorder voice and your true voice. It is such a hard way to just go about the day. Like I remember when I was recovering from anorexia, that's exactly what it was like. And I would totally picture a devil on one shoulder and it (laughs) sounds like bizarre to anyone who hasn't struggled, but it is just so all encompassing and just the amount of energy it takes to just carry out your daily activities like that with this constant like battle between these two voices in your head is, is exhausting. Um, it's so exhausting. Yeah. yeah. And that's why sometimes it's just easier to do what the voice tells mm-hmm. you like restricting or over-exercising or, um, you know, and all those other behaviors that keep us stuck. Right. So 
we get it. Yeah. Yes. And it's like easier in the short term, but then the, like what I found when I was in recovery, the times I would give in the voice, the voices would just get louder. And so, um, by saying no to it and then committing to whatever value directed action you have that day, whether it's going to school or work or family time, committing to it and allowing that voice to be there, it might still be loud at first, but over time, like the more you say no, what I find for myself or what I found was that it did eventually, you know, really that volume turned way down. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, but yeah, it's, it's so tough. It is so tough, but it is about like, you know, practice and you're absolutely right. When we listen to that voice and let it guide us, we're just giving that voice more power. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I love just kind of like externalizing the voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And like act and value directed action is something that really saved me in recovery. Um, because yeah, you're able to see like this voice is separate for me. Like, and I always tell my yeah. clients that are struggling to kind of differentiate that voice between their own voice. I always ask them, well, would you recommend any of these behaviors to someone you love? And if the answer is no, then most likely this is the eating disorder talking to you because this is not in line with your values. You would never recommend this to anyone else that you love. I love that. Yeah. And then they're usually like, oh, wow, that's so true. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) we can move forward because I think some people really struggle with seeing it as two separate voices. Um, I don't know if you encounter that a lot, but I have a lot of clients that they're like, what do you mean, Allison? Like, this is me, this is my voice. And I'm like, well, I know it might not sound like a different voice, but it is this hypercritical, you know, part of you that that's in the front and center right now. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think sometimes like continuing to provide education about it, like the neurological aspects of it and how um, it's something that uh, like some of these voices are like involuntary that we hear, like these thoughts are are involuntary, Um, but also like recognizing that these thoughts likely developed as a way to protect ourselves Mm -hmm. um, and as a coping skill. So at some point, you know, having these really critical thoughts about ourselves maybe helped um, or we thought um, helped us against uh, experiencing criticism or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, And so, but when we, I love like how you differentiate because if you have a voice that's in line with your values, it's just going to feel really right for you. But if you have a thought that is really distressing to you, um, then it sounds like it's not a part of your values. And this is just something like, and we can talk about all different kind of act metaphors, like, you know, having this like passenger on your bus right now, or, um, the unwanted, unwanted party guest, um, mm-hmm. that I love. There's a lot of like YouTube videos about that. Um, and it's just something that's with you right now. It doesn't always have to be there, but it's just something that's with you right now. Yeah. And it's, you know, so similar um, to like OCD and anxiety where, yes. and if you think like eating disorders are almost like one big obsession and compulsion, <laughs> you know, yes. like it's so similar. And so being able to externalize that for people with OCD or anxiety too, like, you know, acknowledging that it's there, but it's separate from you and we can get back in line with our values. Absolutely. Yes. And I think that's why, um, both of us probably do all that work with anxiety Mm -hmm. and OCD and eating disorders. I really do view it. Like they're all so related and so, 
Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of neurological evidence for how they're related and also just like how they play out, like the anxiety and the compulsions. Yeah. Mm-hmm, totally. Um, body image seems to be that one thing in eating disorder treatment that lasts the longest. And I see um, a lot of clinicians kind of tiptoeing around it, like not really sure how to approach it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is such, it, there's not like a one quick solution to body image distress. Like mm-hmm. it is so complex. I always tell my clients, you know, the goal isn't to never have bad body image days again, just like mm-hmm. the goal with the eating disorder voice isn't to get rid of it, but rather to learn how to cope with them and not let it impact our daily life so much. Um, I'm curious, how do you approach body image treatment in your work? Yeah, absolutely. I love this question. Um, and I completely would agree that I think most mental health treatment from a CBT or ACT perspective involves learning how to tolerate uncomfortable emotions and thoughts, including negative body image. Um, so the goal isn't to make those thoughts completely go away because it's definitely like unrealistic, like you said, but how can we like manage it when it comes up? So mm-hmm. Um, I think number one thing is just validation that there is so much fat phobia and so much weight stigma in our, in our culture. Um, or I guess I could say in our country, um, like airplane seats, for example, like those are not accessible for many people, Mm -hmm. um, or like how the majority of women are size 12 to 14, but then that's like one size away from being labeled as plus size. Mm -hmm. Um, and just so much like underrepresentation of like body diversity and media, um, and like in influencers, um, and just like, you know, historically, like making a lot of jokes about people in larger bodies. So I guess I just want to validate, like, you're not wrong for thinking that, you know, thin folks have privilege. Um, but this doesn't have to be the number one factor to define your life as well. Mm -hmm. So how can we work towards creating a fulfilling life that isn't so focused on body image? And a lot of people come in saying like, well, I hate myself and I hate my body. I feel gross in my body. Um, and so I always tell them like, well, the goal isn't, doesn't necessarily have to be where you like wake up tomorrow and you're like, I love myself. I love my body. I'm perfect. And, you know, and, and just be like your biggest cheerleader. Like if that feels inauthentic to you at this moment, maybe body neutrality is a good place to start Mm -hmm. and just kind of like decreasing, like the, like the intensity of emotion that you feel toward your body. Mm -hmm. Um, and recognizing that there's so many other parts of you besides what you look like, like you have so much more worth in this world than just what you look like. Um, and so one of my favorite interventions is like, how can we focus on how amazing your body is instead of how much you wish you could change it? Mm-hmm. So for example, for me, a big part of, um, like my mental health is the yoga that I was doing. And, you know, I also just want to acknowledge like the yoga that's like really marketed here is, I mean, I go to like a huge chain yoga studio and um, I want to acknowledge that I think that there are certain problematic things and like cultural appropriation, but um, it's a space that has been like, there's a, there's a lack of toxic fitness culture in, in the culture of like this, um, these like workout studios. Um, and that's for me is so important because I think I was going to a lot of like workouts classes 
that just had like so much toxic fitness culture and everything being about burning calories and building muscle. And that just for me was so not in line with my values. I just wanted to come and feel good in my body. And mm -hmm. so yoga was something for me, like the first time I was able to do a headstand, like that was huge and just made me appreciate my body so much. And, you know, being so privileged of, of being mostly able-bodied um, and to be able to do these things and to be able to work towards doing certain poses, like that to me was so fulfilling and made me appreciate my body so much. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Being able to see it like as an instrument, not an ornament. Um, exactly. And something to take care of, mm -hmm. something to nourish and recognizing like, wow, I'm only going to get one body for the rest <laughs> of my life. And how do I want to treat it? Um, and so sometimes like one of my favorite um, also kind of like from an act perspective is imagining um, your current self going back in time and speaking to the child version of yourself when you were struggling with body image. And like, what would you say to that child? Mm -hmm. um, and um, I bet that it would be something very self-compassionate and something very loving and warm. And then we ask folks to now imagine yourself several decades, several, several decade, decades older and you're older and wiser and you've lived this really fulfilling life. And if that person were to come back to you now, what would they tell you now in regard to like mm -hmm. body image stuff and how you want to live your life? And most of the time, it's not saying that like you should exercise more, that you should diet. And it's kind of just like, just feel at peace with yourself, feel mm -hmm. at home within your body. So I love doing like that kind of work with body image. I love that. I, I often do the child part, but I, yeah, I like looking at it from like the future too. Like imagine like yourself 10 years older, what would you say to yourself now? Um, that's, that's amazing. And I think when we think about that child part, um, I think often eating disorders and body image issues, you know, in conjunction with the systemic issues, they often come up at a time when we are desperate for an anchor. They're kind of mm -hmm. like a smoke signal um, for something else in our lives that's going on or maybe an unmet need um, or trauma. And so I always like to ask clients too, like, you know, when your body image distress is coming up or your eating disorder voice is super loud, what else might be going on that's triggering mm -hmm. this? Like, mm -hmm. this is the smoke signal for something deeper. And let's unpack that versus take it out on your body. Absolutely. I love the way that you frame that. I also think like, you know, I often tell people like eating disorders or concerns with eating and body image in general, typically have nothing to do with eating and body yeah. image. It's so much more than that. And I think that's like a huge misunderstanding in our field from people who don't have experience with it. It's like rarely ever about food and, and what you look like. It's so much about like worthiness and a sense of belonging. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, like symptomatically, just a lot of anxiety or maybe not feeling rejected. Mm -hmm. um, and like the, the behaviors that we do to try to target like food and body image are typically a way to try to manage like much deeper distress, exactly what you're saying, like the smoke signals. Like, I love that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned anxiety. Do you see this often like going hand in hand with folks struggling with eating disorders? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it is st like statistically the highest comorbidity or, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, 
the the diagnosis that we see mostly go along with yes. um, with eating disorders. And I think the most common thing I see, I don't know, um, maybe you maybe you have the similar experience, but a lot of like people pleasing that leads mm-hmm. to a lot of like social anxiety um, and just like perfectionism um, yes. and how that perfectionism in like a lot of areas of someone's life, like with school, career, relationships, and just putting so much pressure on ourselves that it creates a lot of anxiety. Totally. And I think one thing with perfectionism that people struggle with when I, you know, when I bring it up to clients, like, you know, let's talk about this perfectionistic party. Sometimes they're like, what do you mean? I'm not a perfectionist. I can handle my room being messy. And it's like, well, that's not really what that means. Usually for people it's in, it's highlighted in like one or two areas of life. And it kind of becomes this whack-a-mole. And like for me, for example, it used to be food in my body and then it moved to school and then it moved to work and then to relationships. So it just like, it bounces around and um, it's just another tactic of that, that high anxiety trait, you know, that needs everything to be perfect and just right to avoid any, you know, feared consequences. Exactly. Um, You know, for anyone listening right now that is struggling with anxiety, what are three like quick things um, that someone could do right now to just bring their anxiety down a few notches? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I always, my number one recommendation is to develop some sort of mindful breathing habit. Um, And, you know, recognizing that like mindfulness does have Asian roots and we need to acknowledge that. Um, And so I think some people, when they look up like mindfulness, they come up with meditation and that like, you know, they think they have to meditate for like 20 minutes or something every day. And I always, and then they always say like, I'm doing it wrong because my mind like wanders while I'm doing it. I'm like, no, that's, that's (laughs) like, that's like normal. You know, it's really hard to, you know, make your mind go blank. Mm -hmm. Um, But really the point of it is what I explain to people is kind of this like fight or flight response. Um, And we also have like freeze and fawn. but sticking with a fight or flight response, when we experience anxiety, our body's really stressed out and they think that there's like a danger happening in our environment. And that's what leads to like a rapid heart rate and shallow breathing. And sometimes we feel like numbness and tinglingness in our body, um, or we feel like really cold or really hot. So the number one way to just like physiologically calm yourself down is through breathing and just like Mm -hmm. really like deep mindful breathing that can just be as simple as like one minute, a couple times a day. Um, so I always recommend that folks like try deep breathing, um, even when they're not anxious Mm -hmm. so that when they are anxious, it's something that they've practiced. So I really like the four, seven, eight breathing technique. I don't know if you've, if, if you're familiar with that too. Yeah. Can you tell listeners though? Cause yeah, that's a really yeah. good one. Yeah. And folks can just like Google it. There's a bunch of videos on it. Um, but basically what it is, is that you inhale for a count of four, you hold your breath for a count of seven, and then you exhale through your mouth for a count of eight. So the whole point is to hold your breath in between your inhale and your exhale and for your exhale to be twice as long as your inhale. Um, and I, I don't think I'm, it's inhaling through your nose and then exhaling through your mouth. Like you're breathing Mm -hmm. out through a straw. And if you do this just like three, four times in it and would take like a minute, um, it really, like, it has really helped me to like decrease anxiety. Like when I was in school for like test anxiety, or when I was having trouble sleeping at night, this is something that really just like helped me calm down. So I would say like 
that's one thing um, that folks can practice. Um, but also like regulating your sleep. I think this is like really often overlooked um, and we don't think about normally how like our sleep can be affecting our mood, but just like making sure you're sleeping at the same time every day, like even on weekends and waking up at the same time every day. And for some people avoiding taking naps and not having caffeine too late, because if we're not getting enough sleep or enough quality sleep, it's going to be really hard to regulate our mm -hmm. mood. Um, because we're not going to have enough energy. And if we have low energy, then our body is just more on edge. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that's often that we don't really think about like, oh, like sleeping. Cause I know when I was in college, like if we want to talk about college books specifically, I was doing like, like staying up to like three, four, yeah. five in the morning and like waking up at like noon. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. And then in addition to that, just making sure we're eating regularly and just taking care of ourselves. Um, and so for most people, this would be three meals and snacks in between. And also in college, like I was definitely just skipping breakfast because mm -hmm. I just had coffee for breakfast. Um, yeah. but now thinking like, you know, if you, you're, if you're not eating while you're sleeping, you're fasting. And mm -hmm. then, so if you, the more you delay your next meal, of course, you're going to feel like tired. And of course that's going to put you more on edge. So Yes. Yeah. Those are like the top three things that I would, my, that are my first recommendations for stabilization with anxiety. Yeah, those are great. And it's so um, important to look at those like biological factors too. Like, are you sleeping enough? You know, are you eating enough? Because I think, you know, for most of us that have struggled with eating disorders, we usually have a history of anxiety, but I know for sure when I was struggling, my anxiety was 10 times higher than it is like now. And yeah. that's because you're not being nourished properly. And obviously the eating disorder intensifies it too. But um, yeah, so just some of those basic needs because we're in that fight or flight, we're not thinking about those things. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm so happy that you are here today. Me too. Um, where can listeners find you and hear more about your work? Yeah. So, um, folks can, um, check out my Instagram. So my Instagram handle is Dr. Parissa Neely. So it's dr. Parissa, P-A-R-I-S-S-A dot Neely, N-I-L-I. Um, I also have a website, www.drparissaneely.com, doctor spelled D-R. And, um, yeah, I just hope to continue my advocacy on Instagram. And I love that we met on Instagram. I know, it's and so great. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just really happy that I was able to be here and have this conversation with you. Same here. Thank you so much, Prissa, and definitely stay in touch. Um, I've loved this so much. If you guys are enjoying my content, I would love for you to consider sponsoring my work. Now, I know this sounds like super fancy, but it's really not. It just means subscribing to a monthly donation for my content, as little as 99 cents. Um, anything helps me in order to continue taking the time to create wonderful content for you all. I really put my heart and soul into this work. Um, so there will be a link in the show notes on how to do this. And of course, you could cancel at any time. Um, thanks so much as always for tuning in today and to yet another episode of Body Justice.